If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, my fiends. This is Tom McLaughlin, writer-director of Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, part six. And you're listening to Don't Go Out There's podcast. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. (laughs) In a world where zombies, ghosts, serial killers, and vampires all exist, it's Nico. Brian, Mike, and Dustin, and they are all that stand between you and the films that could end the world. Welcome to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Review Podcast. Just want to thank all our fans and listeners. We really appreciate all support. Super excited for this upcoming interview. We are joined today by another legend of the business, known best for writing and directing Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, writer, director, and producer, Mr. Tom McLaughlin. Tom, this is such an honor. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm a huge, huge fan of Jason Lives. I'm super excited to have you on. Well, I'm very happy, as Elvis would say, my boys, my boys, beyond here. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, we just kind of like to start off all our interviews, you know, by just asking, you know, what is it that kind of got you into show business? And you know, did you have your eyes set on Hollywood ever since you were a kid? I mean, I know you were in rock and roll, obviously, big time in the 60s yeah. and 70s. Yeah. Well, I had a very interesting sort of like, I'm doing it like it or not. My father uh, came to Los Angeles from Detroit to be a filmmaker, and he went to USC Film School, and he graduated in 1949. And of course, in those days, nobody wanted any filmmaker from you know college. You can't learn film in college. So, you know, he ended up getting a a regular job, but still had that desire. He ended up marrying my mother and moving into Culver City with the back lots of MGM there. So I grew up in this environment where I was surrounded by old, you know, sound stages and things from, from the great era of movie making. And I got a hold of an eight millimeter camera. And on the weekends, me and my friends would crawl under the fence in the back lots and start making movies. So most of my childhood was a combination of making films and also doing magic, um, which is what my also what my dad did was that he was a magician and a fire eater. So okay. it really kind of went into my veins where I was, um, you know, kind of inheriting my father's dream. And the only other time I ran into somebody that was just like that, and he went nuts when we met each other, was Eddie Van Halen. 
And oh, wow. Anyway, oh, man. Oh, man. And like, he just hugged me so hard. He said, I've never met anybody that did the same thing where, because that's what I was doing. I was living my dad's dream to be a musician. So, I mean, I thought, well, yeah, I guess that kind of happens. Sometimes you go in kicking and screaming into your you know, parents' uh, you know, world of what, what it was they wanted to be. And you know, for me, it was a blessing. Absolutely. Right. Well, hey, early on, tell us a little bit about, you know, your Emmy nomination, kind of how you came to ride on, on Dick Van Dyke and company. Well, I went from the my movie passion into rock and roll when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all those. Nice. Groups. There you go. And so, you know, I got thrown out of uh, eight high schools for having long hair. And that was at a period in the 60s where, you know, you could not have your hair any longer than touching the top of your ears. But I wanted to do that. And that was it. And we opened for the doors, Iron Butterfly, all these, you know, great wow. groups of the 60s. And we were still 15, 16 year old punks, you know, but we know. Um, by the time it got to 69 and the whole scene here in Los Angeles had gotten very ugly with the Charles Manson murders. Obviously, a lot of my, you know, legendary heroes, Jim Morrison and you know, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, all these people that I saw in Monterey Pop Festival you know, had died of overdose. Other people, same thing that I knew. So I kind of got out of the rock and roll world and got into mine. And I was invited to Paris by Marcel Marceau, where I went over there when I was 1920. And I thought, you know, this could make me a more interesting lead singer. I could do shit on stage that Mick Jagger wasn't doing, <laughs> that James Brown wasn't doing, all these guys who I loved their performing. But then I kind of fell in love with comedy when I was there and started, you know, being able to write sketches of like visual comedy stuff and came back to the United States, absolutely penniless, um, you know, band had moved on. My girlfriend had moved on. So I moved on to the streets and became a performer and whatever I made in the hat that day was how I ate that night and wow. scored away some for rent. But that wow. led from one thing to the other with the mine thing that eventually I formed a group called the LA Mine Company. We were invited on to the Dick Van Dyke series of Van Dyke and Company, which was like 1975, 76. And Dick said, well, who writes your material? And I said, well, I do. And he goes, would you write stuff for me and whoever, you know, guest stars? So here I was, wow. this, you know, 26, 27-year-old kid who was now writing and directing Lucille Ball and Freddie Prince and Jeff wow. Chase wow. and... Carol Burnett, and I mean, all these legendary comic legends. It just, I mean, it was amazing for somebody of my age. And I was right. fortunate enough that the show was nominated, you know, for writing. And uh, it was the same year that there was, it was the first year for Saturday Night Live. So they got three of those nominations, Carol Burnett, and we were the other two. And we knew full well that Saturday Night Live would be the one. <laughs> yeah. But it got me into the Writers Guild. It made me realize, yeah, I can write comedy. Um, but that wasn't where I kind of made my breakthrough. It was obviously in horror. Yes, sir. Um, Tom, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask some things about Jason Lives. Can you tell us how that project kind of fell in your lap at that time? Uh, and when had you seen the first five films? Well, that's a great story, actually, because... I, the first horror thing I wrote was called One Dark Night. Uh, originally, we called it Mausoleum, and then we shot it under the title Rest in Peace. Uh, but then they decided, you know, One Dark Night was going to be the name of it. And we made it for under a million dollars, quite a, quite a bit under. And that was the kind of movies that, horror movies I wanted to do, kind of gothic, 
Um, yeah. You know, throwback to the Hammer horror movies and the Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Roger Corman films. But, you know, if you wanted to get a job as a horror director, you needed to be making a slasher film. That's what was happening. Halloween, to me, is still one of the best films ever, not even just a Thank slasher you movie, just, you know, <laughs> straight up. And same oh, thing, yeah. The Exorcist is like my yep. all-time favorite. But I wasn't interested in all the offers of, look, you know, we're going to go out and kill a bunch of girls, you know, and kind of just come up with something. Something to go over the guy's head, and you know, and we'll give you the money you know, to do that. It's like I don't, you know, it just to me wasn't what movie making should be. So when the offer came along, it was kind of like I, I don't know, can I, can I do something different? What do you mean? Can I put humor in it? You make fun of Jason? No, 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 not make fun of Jason. Make, make the characters have a sense of humor. And hell, guys, it's the sixth one. We got to have some sort of fun about the fact that you know this is like a franchise now. Only James right. Bond was like that. So that's why I put the James Bond opening. Love that scene. Fantastic. So, you know, to basically set the tone, like, guys, you know, this is not going to be, you know, just straight ahead. You know, I'm going to have a sense of humor about it. And breaking the fourth wall, telling the audience some folks have a strange idea of entertainment. I mean, right. stuff like that to try to set it apart. And I didn't know if it was going to do well. I thought the fans might crucify me for, you know, doing one like that. But much to my absolute shock, amazement and humility 35 36 years now you know it's for so many people their favorite and it's sort of right. like the you know entry drug you know in the world of slashers it's like here if you can watch <laughs> this you can watch this next one you know it i right. somehow got it sort of in the middle of, of a, like it's a sort of straight ahead movie you know with a hero and a villain and they both have agendas and then putting the kids in the underwater fights, the car chase, you know, all that stuff made it a little more moving than just a, you know, straight ahead slasher piece. Absolutely. So it, it kind of worked out, you know, that thing of being kind of stubborn and, you know, and they just gave me complete creative freedom. You know, the only thing they took away was Jason's father. I had a scene introducing Jason's father and they were afraid people might think the next one would be about that and they didn't want the audience to get pissed off like they did at the end of part. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, that wasn't even Jason. Oh, wait a minute, it's Tommy Jarfitt's gonna be, oh, screw this, I'm not gonna go and see the next one. And it, you know, it definitely hurt our opening box office because it yeah. followed Aliens, you know, one of the best horror movies ever. Right. The right. second week, you know, people were like, hey, dude, what do you want to do? I don't know. Like Friday or Thursday, ah, no, fuck that. Let's, you gotta go see Aliens. Come on, you know. So, <laughs> You know, it took a while for sort of word of mouth to kind of create, you know, the buzz on that that movie. But no, it was bringing him back, and it was bringing him back in a way. Now he's like Terminator, unstoppable. You know, yeah, full of full of life, and and uh, nothing can do to kill this dude. Now. Yes, sir. Uh, it's funny you mentioned, you know, the James Bond scene, the opening. I think the opening scene's incredible. This was the introductory horror movie for me, so it's truly an honor to have you on. You know, obviously, Jason Lives is such a favorite amongst the fans. We've had Tom, CJ, Darcy on our show. One of the reasons I think it's such a fan favorite is the characters are all actually, you know, likable, uh, which is obviously going against the grain in a lot of horror movies. A lot of characters are pretty awful, but we like all these characters. Can you talk about your thought process in writing your characters like that? Well, absolutely. You know, people have said for years, like, well, you know, who's, who's your mentor? Who inspired you? And I said, Frank Capra. I said, what? What is, what is Frank Capra? It's a wonderful life. You know, I yeah, said, right absolutely. 
you know, what I learned from Capra, and he literally was a mentor to me where I would send him scripts like my next movie, Date with an Angel, was all very much a tribute to the, what I learned from Frank Capra. But what Capra taught me is, you know, if you like the, the characters, you will be rooting for them, you will be involved. You will not be, you know, distanced and feel like you're just waiting for, oh, please, you know, kill this bitch. Ah, geez, I'm just getting on my nerves. I didn't want to go that route, and I hated in theaters where that's what they would be chanting, you know, kill her, yeah, tear her up. You know, I thought, yeah. you know, this is like guillotine, you know, people in France. You know, and I thought, no, I want you to go, oh, shit, I like them. You know, shit, if it's going to kill her. You know, it's like Hitchcock did with Psycho. You know, he killed Janet Lee in the first half hour. You go, oh, shit, now what? So, <laughs> right. You know, you, I, I wanted to kind of go that route where, where you did care. They had a sense of humor. Um, and there was a real spark between uh, Tom Matthews um, and, and Megan, you know, Jennifer Cook. And that was great to have because that was very much like the 1940s kinds of characters that, you know, had these zingers that go back and forth where they were knocking each other, but at the same time they were flirting. And, you know, Darcy and, and uh, Tom Fridley, that whole rapport back and forth was great fun, you know, and it was that kind of thing where, all of us, and I'm sure they probably told you, we're still close friends. You know, 36 right. years later, we still, I mean, I get, you know, texts every day from one or the other of them. And of course, if we're going to do a convention, you know, then we all are, you know, it's like a, you know, family reunion. So it's it's been a really, really wonderful experience that has gone on you know, long past the movie. Yes, you could. Uh, you mentioned your connection to music and the music industry, and I'm a music head myself. All the bands you mentioned is kind of what I grew up on as well. The soundtrack to Jason Lift, almost 35 years old now, still regarded as one of the best 80s horror soundtrack there is. Outside of you know Nightmare Three, is the right. only one that comes close. I'm sure that was heavily influenced by you know your installment a year earlier. But talk about how Alice Cooper came to be involved in the soundtrack. Well, here's the very cool thing, guys. Uh, in the mid-60s, and we were playing all these different clubs and venues in Los Angeles. No one was ever carded for how old you were. They didn't really care. There was a group that we played on the same bill a number of times with called the Naz. And the lead singer in that group was a guy named Vincent. And I, you know, knew him from the gigs, but it was just like, you know, hey, dude, how you doing? Hey, bro. And, you know, we would go to Frank Zappa's house sometimes where everybody kind of hung out in Royal Canyon. And there was groups like the birds and all the other sort of Laurel Canyon type folks there. And so I would talk to him, you know, on and off. And, you know, it wasn't like we were close, but, you know, we were aware of each other. All these years later, Vincent became Alice Cooper. And all those guys, you know, they, they had to drop the name the Naz because their Todd Lundgren had a group called the Naz. So I don't know what is really true in the legend of how Alice Cooper's name came about. I've heard everything, you know, and the one I like the best is Frank Zappa came up with, you know, right. just call yourselves Alice Cooper, the whole group. And then eventually he just made it, you know, his name. Right. Um, so all these years later, you know, um, I, we were at the end of the movie and I was putting in ACDC. I was putting in everything that I thought would be cool. And I put, you know, an Alice song in there. And uh, Frank Mancuso said, oh, you like Alice? I go, yeah. And I told him the story I just told you guys. And he goes, you know, they're looking, you know, to do something like with this film, if you're interested. And I said, shit, yeah, of course. So <laughs> of course. Yeah, Alice right. came up, you know, with the man behind the mask uh, song. 
And it was a little different. It was a little more a hard rock groove to it, which I loved. But they decided, you know, we got to do it again, but make a little more 80s with the kind of 80s synth, sound. Synth, yeah, yeah, the that's synth, synth sound, yeah. exactly. So to this day, guys, the last time I spoke to Alice Cooper was 1966. Um, oh, wow. Through that whole wow. process, never once did we have, you know, we tried. And I was, you know, really trying hard to do the music video because that was something that meant a lot to me. Um, but the record label already had the guy they always worked with, you know, to do that. And then they just used clips from the movie and stuff. But every time, like in a convention or whatever, you know, either he couldn't do it because he his uh, tour schedule changed or something came up for me and I couldn't make it. So we've yet to have that reunion. But in my group, the Sloths, you know, we would do Man Behind the Mask and I'd you know, go out of my way to be as close to Alice's interpretation. But we also did the hard rocker version of it as well. And some fan told me that he met Alice and brought this up. And Alice said, yeah, one day Tom and I got to do that together on stage. So oh, I'm waiting for that bucket list thing to happen because that would be the ultimate. Right. Absolutely. Well, just shift, just shifting gears a little bit. I mean, you kind of brought it up earlier, uh, you know, date with an angel. It's, it's a pretty special movie for you. I know. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what it kind of took to convince, you know, studios and, and producers and everybody to get, get that movie made. Well, you also got to understand, you know, with date with an angel, when I, first wrote it and wanted to do it, there was no E.T., there was no Splash, there was no Mannequin, there wasn't any of this sort of being in love with a fantasy character, whether it's a female or a little rubber alien. So the doors, you know, definitely stayed closed on them, um, I mean, any opportunity to do that. Um, at that time, I had not directed anything, so I had no credit you know, to go by. All I had was the encouragement from Frank Capra looking at the script and encouraging me. And Frank was the first person that said this to me long before Nike ever put it on the t-shirt, just do it. <laughs> and every time I had any kind of rejection or whatever, he goes, Tom, nobody wanted the movies that I was gonna make until I got involved with Harry Cohen at Columbia. And you know, once things started to get successful, so all I can tell you, just do it. Don't listen to it, just do it. Well, it took, you know, till I got Friday the 13th finished and Frank Mancuso and his father, Frank Sr., who ran Paramount, introduced me to Dino De Laurentiis. Dino said, what do you want to do next? I said, this is what I wanted to do for years. So by the time that happened, E.T. had come and gone, Splash had come and gone, all these things. So it wasn't as unique. And you know, a lot of the reviews brought that up. Oh, this guy probably watched Splash and just decided to do a variation. So that certainly bugged me. But the whole passion behind it was... I knew a guy who had died in his late 20s of a brain aneurysm, and he had no idea he had that. And I thought, that's so friggin' heartbreaking. Wow. You know, where's God and all that? And then I thought, well, if the guy's going to die, wouldn't it be great if an angel was coming to take him, this gorgeous angel, so the whole thing of death would not be so horrible. Yet she collides, breaks her wing, and now he ends up, you know, saving her out of the swimming pool and falls in love with her and she with him. And that's kind of where the story would, would sort of go. Um, and all the characters in there are based on real friends of mine that I grew up with. Uh, Don, George, and Rex were musician friends of mine through the 60s. And just everything about it really kind of was my feeling about life and, and wanting to believe that fantasy could step in when you most needed it. So it, it was a real you know passion piece that you know came and went 
you know, in a weekend because the company had gone bankrupt. And I thought, well, you know, so much for that. My, my son was born that same year. So I went, all right, well, God gave me him, you know, and this, I guess, you know, did my best with. But the funny thing, because in the wonderful world of VHS, you know, beta first VHS, then obviously, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays and all the rest of it, it's become sort of this cult underground classic because a lot of kids saw it when they were really young and I was down south doing a number of movies and they go, oh yeah, you know, that's our slumber party movie. So oh, what's that? Yeah, when the girls want something, you go and, you know, this is the one we pick on, you know, and it's not going to offend anybody. So, <laughs> you know, that's kind of was the, the its own little blessing. And I've had a number of people too who have just, you know, their parents loved it and play it every holiday and make them all watch it, you know, like we watch It's a Wonderful Life at Christmas. Right. So it's kind of in the long run kind of it's found its place, you know, kind of where, where the audience that loves that kind of thing, you know, goes. Absolutely. Uh, hey, and, and, and uh, I know Michael Knight obviously played the title role, but yeah. is it true that you almost had Jim Carrey in there? Well, <laughs> I saw Jim, um, I guess, was it once, once bitten? I can't remember if that came out at that time or after that, but I saw he was on a, um, a TV series um, and I saw his comedy act uh, right. at the comedy store where I was performing. And it, I just thought, man, he is so funny. He's so physical. You know, he's my first choice. So I got a hold of him and, I, and he literally was the first person I brought in and felt like, you know, he's the guy. Dino De Laurentiis, you know, older Italian, you know, mogul from the past, you know, he goes, Tom, he's a kid, he's a, he's a funny kid, but he's not the good looking kid. He's a handsome <laughs> kid. You know, and it's like, you know, this guy is going to be a star. <laughs> what else you got? So, I mean, he went through uh, David Duchovny, and I, I can't oh, wow. remember all these people, Uma Thurman for the Angel, and on oh, wow. and on and on. And, Finally, you know, we got down to three guys. You know, Michael was one of them, and I really love Michael. He certainly was had a huge following from the soap opera. Really nice guy, also very funny. And you know, that's the direction you know we went. And Phoebe Gates is like an '80s you know goddess, so I was very right. you know blessed to get her. And then Emmanuel Bayard, after seeing count them six thousand girls either on tape wow. or in person. And Dino <laughs> paid for me to go all over the world to meet the most gorgeous models, you know, any of the upcoming actresses that there was any kind of a, you know, buzz about. And it was, you know, of course I wrote it when I was single because I thought, what a great way to meet the future wife. Thinking <laughs> you know, of all the great gorgeous women. But by that point, not only was, you know, was I married, I also had a child on the way. So it was like, no hanky-panky. So, but Emmanuel, I saw her in a movie when I was over in Paris, and she was the biggest star at that time. And I went after her and convinced her to do it. So, you know, she has, of course, has gone on to be quite a legend there in, in Europe. But, right. you know, after mine, I think she did Mission Impossible and maybe one other thing, but never really kind of, you know, crossed the pond and you know, made a big success over here. Um, but I don't even think she was that interested in that kind of success. I think she really liked doing smaller art, art kind of movies. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so it was, you know, there was, as I said, so much personal in there. And if you get the Blu-ray and listen to my commentary, you know, you'll hear every reason for all the songs that are in there. And, you know, because we had a really wonderful 
group of songs from the cars. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you were asked to write for the short-lived Friday the 13th series. You got a two-part episode titled The Prophecies. Three years removed from Jason Lives, how was it like kind of jumping back into that mindset or that universe? Um, well, I had no desire to do television, you know, at all. Frank Mancuso had me over one night and talked to me about this Friday the 13th series. And I went, really? Seriously? And he goes, yeah. And I said, Jason, every week? No, 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 no. We're going to make it like just calling it Friday the 13th because that sells. The real name of it is Friday's Curse, and that's the way we're going to shoot it in Canada under that title. That's the way it's going to be released overseas. But when here, we're going to use the name. I think, you don't think fans are going to be pissed off when it's not Jason? It sounds a lot like Halloween 3 to me. (laughs) So, you know, he told me the premise about, you know, the, the antique shop with all these cursed objects, and these three people have to go out and keep bringing them back and, you know, risk their lives to get these things. Um, and I thought, well, you know, it's cool. I just think, you know, if you call it Friday's Curse, not Friday, you know, the 13th. But, you know, that can't deal with the business side of this industry. Right. So he went into the first season with it. And then he came to me and said, would you be interested in, you know, being story editor in Los Angeles because they have a story editor in Canada. So that sort of was the beginning where I would come in and start looking at scripts and things. And then there was one that he asked me, if I wanted to direct, it's called Master of Disguise, which I thought was a very cool premise. It was uh, John Wilkes Booth uh, makeup case. Um, and oh, wow. it just felt like, well, that's kind of a cool premise. And I right. an actor who looks Absolutely. a little like Dalton, you know, like James Bond, but he really was very deformed and ugly, but he'd kill and use his makeup sponge, you know, slop up <laughs> the blood and put it on his face and, you know, transform. And then that led to, since I had now had two children, to be writing the Playhouse, which was, I, you know, created a kind of a kid's playhouse that was, it looks exactly like the Bates, you know, home, Norman Bates' right. house. And kids could abduct other kids into it, and they would sort of, like, give the house these kids, and in turn, they could fly, they could do anything they wanted in their fantasy. And I thought it was really interesting in that world of where there's missing children, where did they go? How about if right. kids were actually abducting these kids to get empowered, which I thought could be an interesting premise. And then finally, as they got into the third season, they said that the Ryan character wanted to leave the show, but they didn't want to kill him because he probably was going to come to his senses and want to come back. That's <laughs> the way Frank put it. And so they said, you need to get rid of him, but don't kill him. But they got to think he might not be coming back. So I came up with this crazy premise Oh, he also said it's got to have some sort of an exorcist theme to it. So I came up with this religious idea of of this nun that has this power and Ryan's going to end up killing her and sort of part of the way of de-demonizing him, he ends up going back to the child that he was when he, you know, saw his brother getting hit by a car and he felt it was his fault because he threw the ball that his brother chased. So Mm -hmm. it was a way to kind of reduce him to a child again so he couldn't be part of the team. And they could bring right. in this new character, uh, Steve, and you know, kind of keep going, you know, with the series. So, you know, that ended up being a two-parter you know, for the opening of the third season. Kind of along those same lines, they asked you to do a sequel for Jason Lives. Uh, I've seen interviews where you talk about a Cheech and Chong meet Jason type thing, which sounds great to me. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about this, the. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and what prompted you to not really take on Jason again? 
Well, actually, what occurred was a week after Friday the 13th opened, uh, Jason Lives, and it actually got, you know, far better reviews than any of the others had before. And it was purely because the critics would go, look, you know, it's the same crap that killing kids off, but you can't hate it completely because it's making fun of itself and there's some pretty good jokes in it. And so they actually put it on a better pedestal than before. And when we went to these screenings that first week when it opened, the audience was going crazy. So they felt, you know, it works. So right. what do you want to do next? What, what are we doing for part, you know, seven? And I went, Frank, I don't have a clue, man. I, I, I put everything I could think of in that. I tried to make the kills right. really superhuman so nobody could imitate them. I tried to put every element that I thought that it had not done before. And other than Jason's dad, I don't know quite what to do with it. And he said, what about Jason meets Freddy? I said, how the fuck are you going to do that? They're with New Line. This is Paramount. He says, I'm working right. on it. I remember this is like 86. Eight, yeah, 86, yeah. And um, so he, after a week, he came back. He goes, nah, they don't want to do it. I thought we could work a deal out. He said, you know, you got any other ideas? And just off the top of my head, I went, oh, wait a minute. Teaching Chong are here at Paramount. What about teaching Chong meet Jason? And like he laughed. I go, hey, if you're going to make Frankenstein meet the Wolfman, why not have him Costello you know, meet Frankenstein <laughs> or teaching Chong meet Jason? And he goes, I just don't think it's the same audience. I said, are you kidding? Man, all, all of us smoke the same weed, we drink the same beers. They're going to go. They're going to laugh. They're going to scream and yell. And he goes, yeah, but the horror audience isn't going to want to see all this comedy. I said, yeah, they will. And the comedy Absolutely. I couldn't convince him. You know, it just felt, felt oh, too man. far fetched. So, you know, I said, well, I'll come back when I come back with something, you know, that, that works for me. Literally 30 Two years later was when I finally came up with something you know, that I, you know, love. But by that point, you know, the, the, these, you know, the movies obviously are in this lawsuit that still isn't 100% resolved. But I came up with two different concepts that I, when I put them together, I thought this could be a very cool sequel to my movie, 13 years later, set in 1999, and in a forest that is completely snowed in so it would have elements of like john carpenter's the thing where you couldn't get out you know you were stuck in that that world and of course i found a very very theatrical and costly way of making jason come up through a frozen crystal lake you know oh, and man. go after this group oh, of man. high school catholic girls who are badass with an irish nun who was like the worst nun in the world like the one i number of the ones I had growing up as a kid. Um, and I thought, you know, this could be really interesting choose off between that that world, them fighting like crazy and not even knowing who this guy is. I mean, it, it came from another state, so they're completely devoid of any Jason knowledge as I had in Jason Lives, where they were all very aware of the legend. So it I kind of completely, you know, changed up the circumstances. But I couldn't make it as a fan funded thing. It's just way too expensive with that much right. snow and cabins and freezing over Crystal Lake. Um, just that whole idea of having a chase across Crystal Lake. But some, you know, the girl, you know, the famous thing where they always keep falling down. Well, here it makes sense. You know, the faster right. you go, the quicker you're going to fall. And Jason just, right. is coming, you know, relentless. So I found a lot of things that, you know, you've never seen in the series. Uh, but I, I hit a brick wall when I, you know, put it out there because I thought, the legal thing was going to get resolved, but it's right. still, they're still going on about who gets what, what, 
and one has uh, Friday the 13th and the other has, you know, hockey mask Jason and they got to work out a deal between them before that can happen. Yep. Well, you brought up the snow. So let me ask you, I mean, we had Vincent on the show, you know, to promote never hike alone and never hike in the snow. Uh, you know, your concept art, like you said, I mean, I've seen some of that, that obviously you were, you were wanting to go that route that you finally did release. Um, did you, you know, did you have any influence on Vincent taking that route, you know, in the snow or, I mean, I know even the sequel to 09 remake, I think they were looking at a winter setting possibly as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's come up on over the years as a possibility. Most people didn't know quite how to do it. You know, why, you know, because it's a summer camp. If you're going to be in Crystal Lake, you're supposed to be there in the summer. And so I think a lot of people sort of disavowed, you know, distance themselves from that idea because it didn't really seem to make sense. In the same way, you know, I just finished The Diary of Pamela Voorhees, which is the whole thing that leads up to Pamela and young Jason coming to Crystal Lake. And the whole time I'm going, why has nobody done this? It makes no sense. This is what Victor Miller wanted was to keep it psychological thriller, you know, killer. He didn't want, you know, a deformed Jason, but now he's embraced it. But I just started thinking, you know, there is a whole incredible, basically Pamela is a serial killer in the middle of the country after World War II into the early 50s. And nobody paid much attention to some woman and some really freaky looking kid, you know, that she was had with her. But I found, um, along with James Sweet, who did uh, Jason Rising and with Vincent, you know, we've been, you know, started kicking this ball back and forth and started putting this thing together. So we basically have a movie, but we're leaning more towards it. It could really be a wonderful, like, extended series, like eight, eight maybe episodes, six, eight, whatever. Oh, yeah. And, you know, because that 10-year time period, there's a lot that happens that turns Pamela into the Pamela we meet on the first one. And Jason, from this, you know, mentally retarded, deformed child into this knows one thing, which is to kill because of what he's learned from his mother in that course. So it's pretty intense, but also you're going to have like empathy for both of these because, you know, people forget that after the war and into the fifties, this country was in a lot of fear still once again from the Russians as we've had of recent and uh, a bombs, bomb shelters are being, you know, being built communism, everybody who was like, you didn't trust had to be a communist. So people that came in the town that they didn't know, didn't trust. So you put these two into that world, among with the fact that she is going to be very protective of her son and all the things that led to you know, his birth. So it just felt to me like it's actually kind of bigger than just, you know, a single 90 minute movie. So that's oh, I, kind I of think that, that, sounds, yeah, that sounds great to me. That yeah. sounds absolutely great. So basically, um, I have a mass Jason one, you know, and I've got right. young Jason and and uh, Pamela. So I'm hoping one of those two things can happen. And that would be great. Hard to know what's going on behind the scenes right now. We keep hearing these stories, people talking, yeah, it's coming, it's happening, you know. But you know, other people I've talked to said, you know, these guys are still so far from coming to an agreement, and it's not them guys. All you fans out there, you know, they have lawyers and their lawyers want to win big time. And I believe yeah. both lawyers are producers. So they, oh, wow. you know, oh, this wow. is their yeah, client and they're protecting, you know, something they want to be a part of too. Right. So, you know, that it, it makes it really difficult if you're not kind of in that 
immediate club. So it's going to be a lot of me, you know, crawling and like I did at the beginning of my career. You know, it's like I don't give up very easy, but, you know, it gets harder and harder as the whole rules and everything changes. Absolutely. You know, the world of streaming and, and things and big movies is you know, about the only ones that can kind of get into the cinema these days. You're right. But then the black phone comes along. That does really well. Yep. So it's like, hey, you know, and that's not built on any franchise. It's just, you right. know, kind of cool idea. Right. So I keep Absolutely. going. Absolutely. Uh, we're not too far away from uh, Halloween, so just a little bit of a fun question here. How does Halloween look at your house? Surely that part six tombstone has to be somewhere as far as your decorations go. Well, that tombstone you know, actually sits right behind me in my backyard. There you go. <laughs> um, it takes three people to lift that son of a bitch. So <laughs> if you're going to come and steal it, you better have a couple guys with you. Because, I mean, it's solid concrete. And the reason for that was when we were in uh, Covington, Georgia, where we were shooting the movie, to get, uh, you know, basically a foam, phony headstone, we'd have to have it ordered in Hollywood, have it made and sent out. And it was cheaper just to go to a guy that makes graystones and say, hey, you know, can you put <laughs> Jason Voorhees on this thing? And, you know, yeah, I'll have it to you tomorrow. So, you know, easy, quick, fun. But, you know, I'm dragging it around from house to house along with <laughs> Jason's coffin which is down in my basement and I've done nice. quite a few podcasts from in the coffin. Um, oh, and nice. I just, you know, been holding on to them because they're like two very great treasures to have. Right. At one point, the motion picture Academy, uh, Guillermo Totaro that said, you know, if you have anything you might want to give to the Academy. And I said, well, I guess if I was going to let it go to some place where other fans, everybody could see it, you know, I guess that would be the place. But I was in the middle of a divorce. The opposing lawyer would not, let me remove anything from the house, including those. So unfortunately, that opportunity went and passed. So now I'm just, you know, holding on to them until some, you know, great day if I decided to part with them in some way. I don't know. And I have no idea what they're really worth. I, I, it could be all over the place. But I just really want people to be able to see them. And when I have guests over here, they'll take pictures around them or sitting in the coffin. I used to bring them to shows. Um, you know, so that they could have it, you know, if we're going to show the movie, you could also come and sit in the coffin too. So, it, you know, they're two very cool props to have. I'll, I'll buy the coffin from you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, that's a rich guy talking there. Yeah. Tom, uh, I, you know, this is, wasn't in the script, but it's, I mentioned it earlier, uh, my two co-hosts probably heard this story 300 times now. They probably don't even want me to tell it again, but Jason Lives was the very first horror movie I ever saw as a little kid, you know, six, seven wow. years old. Me and my little brother and babysitter got it from Blockbuster or something like that. Took me 30 minutes to get through the first five minutes just because I was so scared, but I truly love yeah. Jason Lives. It's one of the movies that's the most influential for me as a horror fan. I don't even know if I would be on this podcast without it, honestly. So I just wanted to say wow. it was truly an honor to uh, interview with interview you, talk to you, um, pick your brain a little bit, and uh, I just want to say thank you for coming on our show. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug right now, anything going on in your life that you'd like to tell our audience? I'd love to return that favor, that compliment. That was great, man. I really appreciate that. And, you know, every time I hear that, I think, oh, come on, you know, I just made a movie. But then I think if I got to meet James Whale, who did, you know, Frankenstein and, and, and Bride and 
some of those people, I would go crazy because, you know, I was that little kid in front of the TVs, you know, when I'm in the 50s watching. And in those days, you would see, because the way they did the deals is they would show the same movie at nine o'clock, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, on, on one of the local stations here. So as a kid, you could sit in front of there and just have that, you know, whole movie memorized come Saturday. And with your friends, you could start, you know, doing the lines back and forth because there was no DVD, so no, no second shot, you know. If you went and saw something in the theaters, it was gone forever, you know, <laughs> so until all of this obviously changed. But the influences of all that stuff, I mean, it's all over that movie. I mean, there would be no resurrection of Jason with the lightning bolt if it wasn't for Frankenstein, you know, yeah. and I had to do a nod to Karloff by calling the, you know, the market Karloff's, you know, market. And everything I wanted it to have people say, look, we're all fans here, you know, all part of the same geek blood that we love this stuff. And we want to be part of that family of like, yeah, you know, we always felt like we weren't really understood just like these guys were. But, you know, they got to speak for us and they represent us. So anytime I, I hear that and think about, you know, how those influences hit me as a kid, it's like, yeah, same with you guys seeing these things and the, you know, when they came out, you know, in DVD and, and, VHS and you know so many people come up to me and they've seen the movie twice as many times as I have <laughs> you know, it's like really it goes, yeah it's like comfort food in this weird way you know but absolutely, wow, absolutely. I put on some of these movies anytime any place and just like you know like in a warm bath just going yeah this is great you know so I, I really appreciate the compliment um something to say yeah um Music-wise, um, I've had this band, The Sloths, we've been doing for the last 10 years. We've, you know, kind of resurrected what we were in 66, doing the same music that we did, the cover songs and stuff, and then kind of created our own stuff and actually got a vinyl album out of it, which, you know, it's okay, nice. online and things. But then COVID really kind of shut us down. You know, everybody's a little bit older, um, considerably, <laughs> and we were a band of basically 60-year-olds 60, 60 going in doing music from the 60s. And my whole adage is, look, we're going to rock till we drop, guys. You know, we've got an opportunity to get out there and do something we wanted to do at 16, and it's even better now. So I still have that same juice in me. And even though the band is kind of separated, you know, you know everybody kind of retreating you know, into the trenches and cut off our tour, cut off the second half of the album we were going to do, I said, what do I really what would really be fun to do? And I came up with this concept of a band called Horror Rocks. And that's H-O-R-R-R-O-X-X, like horror and rock and roll. And I started looking at all the great fucking songs that are in horror movies. And I found like 50 of them. You know, everything from Kill the Clown to Outer Space to Sympathy from the Devil to Pet Cemetery. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. So I put together this whole list and started talking to people, and I thought, you know, if we could premiere like at some of the horror conventions, like on Saturday night, and rather than yeah. just have a band, have a band of, you know, nucleus would be that, but then bring in, you know, people almost like, you know, Hollywood vampires, people who are in horror movies, either as players in the band, or, you know, actually like an actor in there, but they also play, you know, guitar or sing or whatever, and just fill it up with guests, you know, like each nice. one of those things. So if you're a fan of the movies, it's like, great, there's that music. If you're a fan of just the music, there's that. I didn't know that was in that movie. Shit, 
So, you know, and then have visuals, you know, with like clips and things going on. So it'd really be like this great show. So that's, you know, one of the things I'm involved with now putting together, uh, you know, getting good members together and trying to see how we can get, you know, booked in some of these conventions, you know, to do that. Um, but it, to me, it's like, I just feel like this would be something I would love to see on a Saturday night. Oh, Absolutely. Yes. That would be fantastic. That is a great um, idea. Yep. You know, if Alice happens to be there, you know, uh, D. Snyder, I talked oh, to him about this. There you go. Uh, the bass player from Megadeth, David, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. I can't remember his last name, but we talked quite a bit about it. Vinnie Vincent from Kiss. All of these guys, you know, they do the conventions. So it's like, you know, hey, you want to get up and do a song? You know, so I'm hoping, you know, this again. That would be awesome. Tom McLaughlin dreaming, you know, put something like that together. Um, and be able to play clubs as well, as well as, you know, the, the horror conventions. So, you know, I, I've got, you know, that that going on. As I said, the movies, obviously, the scripts. Just have to keep, you know, keep vigilant and hope hope something works, you know, in that way. so. Come on. You know, and then um, any of you guys who, you know, go on YouTube, um, there's a supplemental piece that they did with me called Legends Never Die, Hollywood Forever. Yes. And that little black and white, I think it's like five minutes, six minutes short, is about my post <laughs> days. Once I'm in my crypt, which I bought, and I have instructions <laughs> on there about what to do, the show goes on, boys. I mean, it's like I, I've got plans of how to try to create some sort of energy that remains there. We get together every year on my birthday, which we've done it for the last 10 years, and we just talk about what's going on in our lives and all the possible things. Nothing about death, just like good, fun, hanging out time. Awesome. But it's right in front of my crypt. So my hope is that there is such a thing as bioenergy, the very thing I had in my One Dark Night movie, that, you know, resides certain places. It certainly resides where there's murders and things that are horrible. And when people go to their grandmother's house or places that you have great memories, you can somehow feel that person. It depends how sad, you know, sensitive you are in those realms. You may hear something, see something, who knows? Other people go, I don't feel a fucking thing, dude. You know, it, it <laughs> all depends on kind of like where you're at in that whole yin-yang, positive, negative energy. But I have seen too many things in my life to not saying there's more than news, weather, and sports out there. And if you can't figure it out yet, it's because it's not a science. And the science <laughs> takes three times doing something and getting the same result. So we still are looking for that breakthrough. And my crazy idea is trying to be a part of that. And they go, well, you're not even going to know. You're going to be dead. I go, you know what? I know right now. I don't care after that. If, it's, if it lives on, that's great. All I want to do is set the stage and it's the rest, of, you know, up to you all after that. See if you can get something to happen. But, you know, that that's sort of my third act um, when, once I get through these first two. That's but awesome. that's not going to happen until 2050. Tom, I just want to thank you for well, your time it, again, yeah. uh, coming on our show. We truly sure, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure guys. Great meeting you all too. Yes. Great, great meeting, meeting you as well. You, yes, thank sir. you again. Take care you guys. Hey, hey, have a good day. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank Take you care. again. Peace out. Just want to remind everybody.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.